chapter 4, as we continue our series in Luke's Gospel, we will be looking at verses 31 to 44 this morning. Luke 4, 31 to 44. Follow along as I read this passage. It follows on the heels of Jesus being rejected at Nazareth. And we pick it up in verse 31. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee. And he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching. For his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice. Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he rose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever. And they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever. And it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting... All those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God! But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. When it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place, and the people sought him and came to him, and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Have you ever been in a service where someone interrupted the service in a dramatic way? Not like, You know, something small, we have small distractions all the time. Those are fine. They don't bother me, if you're wondering. Uh, uh, But have you been somewhere where it was dramatic? It affected and shut down the whole thing. I sometimes daydream as a preacher. Like, what what am I supposed to do in these situations? You know, how do you handle these when something happens? Growing up, I remember the, the pastor of the church that... Uh, I grew up attending. Uh, he was preaching one time and someone stood up in the middle of the service and started yelling at him. <laughs> and he said, oh, oh, thank you, thank you. Well, it, this is not an interactive service. I'm sorry. <laughs> and then I think the ushers came in and went. So, so ushers, this is your responsibility to, you know, remove them from the premises. <laughs> um, but here is one of the most incredible interruption stories I have heard before other than what we just read in Luke's gospel. It was at William Grimshaw's church, August 8, 
1756. George Whitfield had come to preach. And Grimshaw gave him the pulpit. Here's how Faith Cook in her biography of William Grimshaw of Hawthorne or, or Haworth uh, writes in Banner of Truth book, says this, quote, As Mr. George Whitfield mounted the temporary scaffold to address the thousands spread before him, he was observed to engage in secret prayer for a few seconds. Then casting a look over the multitude, elevated his hands in an energetic manner, implored the divine blessing and presence. With a solemnity peculiarly his own, he announced his text. It is appointed for man to die once, and after that, the judgment. After a short pause, he was about to proceed a wild, terrifying shriek issued from the center of the congregation. A momentary alarm and confusion ensued. Mr. Whitfield waited to ascertain the cause and sought the people, uh, besought the people to remain still. Mr. Grimshaw hurried to the spot and a few minutes was seen pressing, and in a few minutes was seen pressing through the crowds towards the place where Mr. Whitfield stood. Brother Whitfield, said he, with the energy which manifested in the strongest manner the intensity of his feelings and the ardor of his concern for the salvation of sinners, you stand amongst the dead and the dying. An immortal soul has been called into eternity. The destroying angel is passing over the congregation. Cry aloud and spare not. Someone had died in the crowd. Faith goes on to say, the awful occurrence was speedily announced to the people. After a lapse of a few moments, Mr. Whitfield again announced his text. It is appointed for man to die once, and after that, the judgment. Again, a loud and piercing shriek proceeded from the spot where Lady Huntington and Lady Margaret Ingram were standing. A thrill of horror seemed to spread itself over the multitude when it was understood that a second person had fallen victim to the king of terrors. Another person died in the congregation. When the consternation had somewhat subsided, Mr. Whitfield gave indications of his intention of proceeding with the service. The excited feelings of many were wound up to their highest point. All was hushed. Not a sound was to be heard. And a stillness like the awful stillness of death spread itself over the assembly as he proceeded in a strain of tremendous eloquence to warn the Christless sinner to flee from the wrath to come. What an interruption. I'm very confident that I could not get away with continuing the service if someone dropped dead this morning, <laughs> let alone two people dying. But can you imagine the attention people would have had to the preaching of the word that morning or that afternoon? Having 
announce the providential text that is appointed for man to die once and after that the judgment, only to have two people drop dead, die in that instant, just showing the importance of such a passage and such a truth. If ever there was a time to be reminded of one's need to be right with God before death, it was in that moment. What an interruption in preaching. I mean, it's like, Whitfield's like, let's just do the funerals right now. (laughs) Well, Jesus in our passage before us has an incredibly startling interruption to a service that he is preaching at. The people are amazed at what is happening and Jesus handles it with calm and with authority. Yet like Whitfield, it ends up serving to focus people's attention that much more upon the word spoken. You could have not, you couldn't have gotten people's attention and kept their attention any more than was already had in that congregation. Well, Luke, he gives us what we might call a day in the life of Jesus. Really a a little more than a 24-hour period in Jesus's life. There is a lot packed in here. It is a busy day for Jesus. It's like that old show 24. You know, it's like 24 hours to save the world. (laughs) One hour. And and here's Jesus who has 24 hours and we watch him scene by scene ministering. What is the focus of Luke in this section? Well, it's on his authority. Jesus' authority. Verse 32 says that they were astonished at his teaching for his word possessed authority. Verse 36, and they were all amazed and said to one another, for what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean, unclean spirits and they come out. Jesus begins to perform miracles among the people as he preaches to them. And he shows his authority over demons, his authority over disease, and then in chapter five, his authority over nature itself. And so from this part of chapter four into chapter five, we'll see the authority of Jesus. Why does Jesus do miracles? Why is his preaching accompanied by the miraculous? Well, that's what we want to look at this morning. Three purposes for the miracles of Jesus. Because now he begins to do miracles. He didn't do any signs, at least uh, that Luke records in uh, Nazareth. But now he begins to perform signs, miracles. Why? Why? Well, here we're going to see three purposes for the miracles of Jesus. We'll see that miracles show Jesus' credentials. Miracles show Jesus' compassion. And miracles show Jesus' coming kingdom. Let's first see how miracles show Jesus' credentials in verses 31 to 39. Verse 31 says, And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee. He was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. Jesus was in his hometown of Nazareth. And now he has been driven out of town. He was almost pushed off the cliff, but he miraculously escapes. And now he goes down to Capernaum. And if you were to look just on a map, you would go, that's not going down, not going south. But, but elevation, it is very much so going down. 
Uh, Nazareth is around 1,300 feet above sea level, and Capernaum is about 700 feet below sea level. This is about a 2,000 drop, a foot drop in elevation. Now, Capernaum is on the north side of the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and they had an agriculture and fishing economy there. And this is where Peter has a home, maybe not where he grew up, but where he lives now, as we will see, Simon Peter. And actually, when I was in Israel, I got to go to Capernaum, which is cool. They think they know the spot where this ancient town was. And there's a synagogue that was maybe a third century synagogue that they believe was likely on the same place, the footprint of where the first century synagogue would have been where Jesus preached, they believe. And uh, Simon's house, where his mother-in-law was healed, they believe is just a, like a little bit down. It's like it would be like being on this end of the scoop and then... Simon's house is like the other side of our building. I mean, that's how close they are. You can walk there in a a matter of seconds from the synagogue to the house. And it's right on the water. So like if we were in the synagogue now and there were no walls and I'm speaking to you from here, I could see the sea right there and we could all walk to the water, the shore in about one minute. It's that close to the Sea of Galilee. In fact, while we were touring the city, I just went out and stood on some of the rocks there on the shore and just looked out. It's beautiful. Uh, It was a beautiful day while we were there. So this is the city of Capernaum, where Jesus is going to do his ministry on this day. And he's in the synagogue. This is Jesus' pattern. And he goes there just like he did in Nazareth, and he's preaching there. And they're astonished at his teaching. Why? Why are they so impressed by this, amazed at his preaching and teaching? Well, because it says he preached with authority. Now, to understand the difference of Jesus between the, what they were used to, in, in contrast to what they were used to, uh, many think that uh, the difference is the style of, well, the, Mark says that the style of the, their teachers was very different than Jesus's. In fact, in Mark chapter 1, verse 22, It says, and they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who has had authority and not as the scribes. What were they used to? Well, we have uh, some some quotes of rabbis who really seemed like they just quoted each other. Just quoted one rabbi after another, and it was just like a stream of a history of interpretations of a particular text. And so it was just like, oh, so-and-so said this about this pastor, so-and-so said this about... And it was just kind of this long, drawn-out, like, filibustering for God. You know, it's like, just let me just talk about... It was like reading the phone book. It was dry. One one, um, rabbi, Rabbi Eliezer, said in the Talmud, quote, Nor have I ever in my life said a thing which I did not hear from my teachers. (laughs) The same was said of uh, another rabbi where he said, He never in his life said anything which he had not heard from his teachers. So he's just like, quote this guy, quote this guy, quote this guy, quote this guy. And just, you know, here's all the interpretations, whatever, you know. And it wasn't confrontive. It wasn't, thus saith the Lord. And yet Jesus comes along and he teaches with such confidence, with such clarity, with a freshness. I mean, think about the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, you have heard that it was written, but I say to you. What? And he begins to just confrontively address where they are with the word of God and speak it with clarity and directness and it captures their hearts. Well, preachers today do not have authority in themselves. 
insofar as they accurately proclaim the word of God, they are to preach with all authority. They have authority. In fact, Paul tells Titus as a new pastor in a, at the island of Crete where he's pastoring, he says, rebuke, exhort, uh, and he says, let no one disregard you. Let no one disregard you. In, insofar as you preach the word of God, don't let, any, don't let them get around the word of God. Box them in. I mean, good preaching boxes you in to the right interpretation where you've seen it for yourself in the text and there is no denying what the text says. It is crystal clear. Your only option is to say, I don't believe God. I reject that, right? It's not to say, well, man, maybe there's another way to take it. The, the preacher's job is to say, to make the word of God so clear in what the meaning is that you cannot escape its clarity. You have to do business with God. And that is what Jesus did as he came and preached. And far too many sermons lack that kind of authority. I mean, maybe you've had the experience where you sat under preaching that was just this hemming and hawing and just whatever. And, and there was just no authority with it. There was no, thus saith the Lord. You, you didn't sense the awe of God from the word of God. It didn't give you any sense of the, the power of God. And then you, all of a sudden you heard the word just simply proclaimed and taught. And it was dramatic. It was a difference. It was like you'd never heard preaching before. I've had that experience. And Jesus wasn't quoting around other people. He had a direct message and it left people without excuse. Now, while Jesus is captivating the people by his preaching, there is an interruption. Look at verse 33. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice. Ha! Or that's what the ESV has. Verse two says, leave us alone. That's probably, I think, the better way to take it. Uh, he says, leave us alone. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. I mean, what a sight. The comedians have hecklers and people yelling out at you. And Jesus had a demonic heckler. Here is a man who is in the synagogue and he's demon possessed. Luke refers to the demon as an unclean spirit. You contrast that with what the unclean spirit says about Jesus. You are the Holy One of God. The unclean spirit proclaiming the holiness of God. And it likely speaks to the demon being morally unclean. Demons are angels that sinned against God shortly after creation and were condemned by God. Yet many of them still have influence in the world. Demons can oppress and possess unbelievers for their purposes. Still at work today. They cannot possess a believer. But why are so many demons coming out of the woodwork here in Jesus' ministry? Why do we see so many of them as Jesus ministers? Well, the simple illustration is, you know, maybe you've turned on the light in your garage or in your shed and a bunch of cockroaches go, and they just go running. You know, when you turn the light on, you see all these cockroaches and they come out and you see them everywhere. And that's what's happening as Jesus, the, the Messiah, the light of the world is appearing. I mean, this demon showed up to synagogue and he was not expecting the creator to be at the service. Now, what's amazing is that this demon led this man whom he was possessing 
to go to church or, I mean, that's kind of anachronistic, but to go to synagogue, right? To go to the gathering of the people of God. Sometimes in, in the movies, it's like, if you pull out a crucifix, the demon's like, ah, you know, uh, or you do holy water or whatever. But that's not at all the case. This demon is saying, hey, go to church. Get up. Get out of bed. Come on, let's go. And he goes to church. He wants to be there. And there's some, I think J.C. Rob was like, you know, Satan and his demons love to go to church on Sunday. And so there he is. And just imagine what this may have been like as Jesus is preaching. Imagine you show up to the service and before the service, you're talking to this guy. You're catching up from the week. And it's a normal conversation. Oh yeah, what'd you do? Oh, we went fishing. We killed, you know, it was great. And you're talking and all these things and, and you're just having a conversation. Oh great, yeah. And you're, you're eating some food and everything. And then you sit down and you sit next to him and everything's good. You're singing, scripture's read. And all of a sudden, as Jesus is revealed through the preaching of the word, as Jesus is preaching, you hear, what have you to do with us? And it's, and you're like, where did that come from? You look over and it's this guy that you've been talking to stands up next to you. And he is screaming out at Jesus. What have you to do with us? Jesus of Nazareth. You've come to destroy us. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And you would just be freaking out. What is, I mean, what do we do? I don't know. What do we do? Security team. Where are you guys? You know, it's like. Uh, <laughs> this, this phrase, this, this, that ESV has as. Ha is maybe like a, it could be taken in one of two ways. One is like, it's kind of like a grunt, like, ah, or it could also be taken as leave us alone. I mean, because the, the words could go slightly different. I, that's probably the better way. Like leave us alone. Either way, he, he's freaking out. He recognizes there's no partnership with him and Jesus, with demons and Jesus. And he asks this question, which can be taken as a question, but it could also be a statement. So ESV has it as, have you come to destroy us? It could be taken as a statement. You have come to destroy us. I think that is the right way to take it. (laughs) One writer said this, if you take it as a statement, you've come to destroy us. He says, this is a marvelously comforting word, though spoken by a demon. (laughs) That Jesus has come to destroy the works of the devil. What an assurance that is for the people of God. Yeah, he has the power to do this and he will do it. This is just a taste, a sample. And so Jesus comes and, uh, and he's preaching and this man stands up, verbally accosting Jesus. The demon rightly identifies Jesus. He says, he calls him the Holy One of God. I mean, demons have good theology. James 2, 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Later, the disciples will say in John 6, 69, they say to Jesus, we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. They're right. So is the demon. But their understanding of him as the Holy One of God is different than the demons. One says this, it is a confession of truth, but not a confession of faith. So you can know and say true things about Jesus and yet have no saving interest in him. That is a very important reality. You can come to church and you can be around people who are kind of share your morality. 
and you're like, yeah, we're good people. I, I like these people. They're good people. And I believe a lot of the same moral things that they do. Uh, I may have the same political beliefs as them. And, and, and you start to go, yeah, uh, okay, Jesus is God, of course, yeah. And Jesus died for sinners and this and that. And you have this, this knowledge that you're like, you're building theology. And you're like, yeah, I think the pastor's right. But you have no saving interest in Christ. You've you've yet to say, God, I'm a sinner. I have no hope without you. I have no hope apart from Christ and what he's accomplished. What I've heard week in and week out, I believe. I trust in him. And that is what needs to happen. And J.C. Ralph says, let us beware of an unsanctified knowledge of Christianity. It It is a dangerous possession, but a fearfully common one in these latter days. And this demon helps us to see that, that this guy's going to church week in and week out. And this demon is yelling out good theology, but it's not saving. He is repulsed by Jesus. He had no idea Jesus was going to be there that day. And he just couldn't take it. This guy's sitting there and Jesus is preaching and he just bursts out. And look at how Jesus responds to this demonic interruption. Look at verse 35. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent, come out of him. When the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. Jesus rebukes him. And what happened? He left. He came out. The demon obeyed immediately. And Jesus doesn't go through some, some elaborate incantation and do all these little things. He says one word. And it's dealt with. The song we sang, the first song we sang. One little word shall fell him. One little word shall fell him. The word of the creator. Jesus will say, he will rebuke. This is the language. He will rebuke this demon. He will rebuke the sickness of Peter's mother-in-law. And he will rebuke the storm. The power of the word of the creator. And what an encouragement that Jesus has this power to vanquish all evil powers. What is it that our demons are doing today? Well, they are seeking to distract people from the truth and destroy people in various ways. Paul warned the church in 1 Timothy 4 of doctrines of demons or teachings of demons. They seek to harm people through false teaching. Later, we'll see a boy who uh, his, his father comes to Jesus and his son is possessed by a demon and he's throwing him into the fire. He's, this demon is t- causing this boy to be thrown into the fire and cause great harm to him. And that's what demons seek to do is cause harm physically, but also to cause harm spiritually. All false re- religion is demonic. Every religion that does not affirm the truth of scripture is demon religion. The gods behind those, the so-called gods, are demons masquerading and doing things to keep people in the system. They're more than happy to give so-called signs to keep people enslaved to these religions. We mentioned this already in Sunday school, but... I think a modern expression of this is the transgender religion, which is an expression of demonic doctrine. I'm not saying that a person who's confused in this way is demon-possessed, but the ideology behind this is demonic. It is telling people to hate themselves and to hurt themselves. 
Listen to Jesse Johnson, one pastor who describes the difference between the God of the Bible and this demon doctrine. He says this, the God of the Bible loves them, but the God of gender ideology hates them. The God of the Bible made their body while the God of gender wants to cut up their body. The God of the Bible sacrificed himself for their sins, but the God of gender wants them to sacrifice themselves for gender. The God of the Bible offers a path to happiness and flourishing, while the God of gender offers them a life of self-loathing and pain. Most importantly, the God of the Bible wants to forgive them, while the God of gender wants to harm them. I mean, this ideology is demonic to harm people in various ways, and this ideology And there's a modern manifestation of that, as well as all the false religions in our world. Now, what is this all about? Why is Luke telling us this? Look at the response of the people at this spectacle in verse 36. It says, they are, again, impressed by the word. They were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. Reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. The word spreads fast in the region. I mean, imagine this. I mean, you would be telling everyone, texting everyone, you're not going to believe what happened in service today. After the service ends, Jesus goes to the house of Peter, which we said is very close. And look at verse 38. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. A few things here of note. Simon is Peter. Uh, We're being introduced to him here. And we'll see his call later. His name is changed to Peter, but here's referred to as Simon. Peter's also married, contrary to uh, the Catholic Church's teaching. In 1 Corinthians 9, verse 5, Paul also refers to the wife of Peter. So Peter's got a wife. Peter has a mother-in-law, right? So you don't have a mother-in-law without a wife. Okay, so <laughs> Peter is, uh, his mother-in-law is ill there. And Luke tells us in particular, she has a high fever. Let's just say she has a fever. Luke is a doctor. And so he's concerned with such details. And we don't know the specific ailment that she has, but it is debilitating. And so they plead with Jesus to do something. And Jesus comes and he rebukes the fever, just like he rebuked the demon. This is not at all to apply that the, the fever is the result of demon possession because Jesus will speak to the wind and the waves and rebuke them. They're not demon possessed. Um, These are distinct things, but he is showing his authority by rebuking this disease. She's healed immediately. And how do we know that? Because she gets up and she starts serving. I mean, when you've been sick, last time you were sick and you got a fever or whatever and you you were just waylaid, the fever breaks Like, are you ready to, all right, I'm ready to go back to work. You know, let's go. No, you're like, okay, I just need to watch some more TV and just kind of sit around, you know, and you just need some more time to fully recuperate. She's healed. And immediately she's like, all right, what are we cooking? (laughs) And, uh, and she's just serving and helping. Tom Schreiner said this just applicationally. He he said, those changed by Jesus give their lives to service. Here she goes. Okay. I want to serve. I want to help. Let's do it. But what do these miracles of Jesus over demons and disease show us? 
Well, it gives authentication to Jesus' ministry. It shows his credentials. It's Jesus pulling out his badge and saying, here's who I am. They are a sign that point to something. Like we put a sign out, Emmanuel Bible Church, and if someone were to walk up to the sign and be like, where's the church? The sign, Emmanuel Bible Church, I'm at the sign. It's like, no, come a little bit further into the building, and that's where we meet, right? We get that. We understand what signs do. They point to something. They point the way. And that's what Jesus' signs do. They show who he really is. They show his credentials. Interestingly enough, John the Baptist's ministry differed from Jesus in a number of ways, but one is that John didn't do any signs. John 10, 31 says he performed no sign. Yet Jesus comes along and does many signs. John is pointing to the Messiah, and here comes the Messiah, and he's authenticated by these signs as he proclaims the nearness of the kingdom. And so this gives Jesus legitimacy. I'm sure Whitfield on that day had an extra level of legitimacy as people were just eager to hear, just, you know, whether it was superstitious or not in their minds, like, people are dying here. This guy's talking about death and judgment. I think I need to listen to this. And of course, the people were. It's amazing that it, it says in verse 36, what is this word when they saw what he did? They realized the connection between the actions of Jesus and how they authenticated his words. Uh, Nicodemus said to Jesus in John 3, 2, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Moses, uh, when he's to go in to Pharaoh in chapter four, it's all about God giving him these signs to perform that he is a messenger from God. And Jesus is the greater Moses, a prophet like unto Moses who comes and is authenticated by signs. And later Jesus will give the apostles the ability to do signs to authenticate their ministry as well. Second Corinthians 12, 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. And so miracles show Jesus's credentials. Secondly, miracles show Jesus's compassion. Miracles show Jesus's compassion. Look at verses 40 and 41. Now, when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of, the, out of many, crying, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. Now, Luke tells us the sun was setting, and we think, okay, big deal. But this indicates that the Sabbath was almost over, and therefore the people were free to travel about again. The people would not have been traveling during the Sabbath, lest they get chewed out by their neighbors for traveling too far on the Sabbath. And so it's like, imagine like a theme park everyone wants to go to, and they want to get on the ride, like the biggest ride. And so there's the gate is closed, and they're all piling up as close as they can to get in the front of the gate. And then the gate is open. It's like, Welcome to, you know, wherever you are. And, and you go, in, and people are like sprinting to, maybe you're not, but some people are sprinting to get in the front of the line at their ride. They want to get there first. And that's what it's like. People are like, this is Sabbath, this is Sabbath, this is Sabbath. And it's like, the sun's going down, the sun's going down. They're like, okay, go. And they're all like running to get to Jesus. They heard about his fame spreading. And they've got sick people. Maybe they're sick. Maybe their relative is sick. And they're going, this guy can legitimately heal people. And let's go there. And so they're like, we got to obey the law, but okay, go. And they're just going. They're going for it. 
And notice how comprehensive Luke is in describing these healings. All those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. Just look at the extent of Jesus' miracles in this. And and thus the explanation for his growing popularity. B.B. Warfield wrote this. Quote, disease and death must have been almost eliminated for a brief season from Capernaum and the region which lay immediately around Capernaum as a center. Can you imagine that? Those poor doctors and nurses. (laughs) Luke's like, man, none of my friends are going to have jobs here anymore. (laughs) Uh, There's nothing to do. What are you going to do? There's no more disease. Now, notice notice also that Jesus deals with more demons here. And this demon identifies Jesus, one of these, as the son of God. So once again, true theology. They know who he is. He's the eternal son of God. He's taken on flesh with the same nature as the father. Jesus doesn't want, though, uh, an endorsement from these demons. I mean, sometimes you have political candidates and they're going to run for office and uh, someone else is going to endorse them. And sometimes they're like, oh, I really hope I get the endorsement from, you know, so-and-so. Other people are like, I don't want the endorsement from that person. It might hurt me. And Jesus is going, we don't want the endorsement. I don't want the endorsement from these demons. They're saying true things, but I don't want that press. I don't want them to speak. And so he silences them again. But in both of this, we see both the physical world and the spiritual world are under Jesus's authority. And he has authority to command them. And so he delivers individuals from both disease and demonic possession. But here we see the compassion of Jesus in all of this because the text says he laid his hands on every one of them. He laid his hands on every one of them. Now, does Jesus need to touch a person in order to heal them? No. We have many examples, like the centurion's son who's sick, and, and he says, oh, you know, and Jesus like, I'm a man under authority. You can just speak, and the word will happen. And, and Jesus says, what great faith. And the child is healed from a distance. Jesus isn't even, can't even see the guy. He's in another town, and, and he heals him. Could Jesus, in theory, have all these people crowded around him and just say, you're all healed? Of course he could. Of course he could do that in a general mass healing. But he doesn't do that. And he doesn't always do things the same way. But he chooses to spend the entire day there seeing each individual. Luke is explicit. Every single person got time, face time with Jesus. And he didn't... The disciples didn't close the line. You know, put the red thing on. Sorry, he's done. We're going to take him over. It's been enough. I remember as a kid, uh, I went to a baseball game and I was trying to get Mark McGuire's autograph and I was like, you know, knee to the chairs. <laughs> and there's like 50 people in front of me and he signed on and then eventually, you know, walk away, you know. And I'm like, oh. and my neighbor got his autograph. And I was like, oh man, so I got to see it, but I, I didn't get one for myself. But, but Jesus is like, I'll say for everyone. I'll say until everyone is gone, until there's no one else. Notice what 
One writer says, he works in the public place, but also enters the private need. He's in the synagogue, but also in the sick room. He carries on a public ministry, but is not allergic to private troubles. Here's the personal care of Jesus for each one. This is true for you too. I mean, some of these people wouldn't even trust in Jesus, though they got their healing. How much more does Jesus care for your personal needs and concerns as his child, as one who has trusted in him? And how concerned is he to hear you express those concerns to him as well? Here's a personal intimate care that he shows for each one. He's not just a general savior who would say, I will save you, but I don't really want to talk to you. I don't really want to know you individually. No, he makes time for each one such that the entire day passes and he is exhausted. And so we see the incredible compassion of Jesus as he stays to heal each one. Finally, we see that the miracles show Jesus' coming kingdom He showed Jesus' coming kingdom in verses 42 to 44. I mean, just imagine how exhausting this day must have been. Jesus working, working, healing, healing, speaking, preaching. No doubt he's preaching through all this. And Jesus is spent. Eventually everyone is healed. He lays down, crashes. No doubt more are on their way, but he's healed everyone that was there and ends the day. More, no doubt, just flocking in, waiting to hear Jesus and have him work a miracle for them. Yet even after all this, Jesus continues his pattern in his life of waking up early. He finds a quiet place to meet with God. Verse 42, when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. And so Jesus You know, if you piece it together with the other gospels, it's still dark out. Jesus wakes up before everyone else and he sneaks out and he goes off to this place. Not hard to get away from Capernaum, get into a desolate place. And and he just has time with the Lord. He has time with the father rather. And they're like, they wake up and they're like, oh man, there's more people. They're crowding in. They're like knocking on the door. Hey, uh, is Jesus there? Is it going to start yet? When does this thing begin? You know, and they're like, okay, let me get him. Where is he? Where'd he go? <laughs> and so they start looking and they finally find him. And they're like, hey, there's all these people. They, 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 they want you to heal them. And it says, look what it says. Verse 42. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. And Jesus is ready to leave the town. And they're like, don't go. Don't go. You have to stay here. Come on, look at all the good you could do here. And he says in verse 43, but he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Judea there is probably a general term for Jews and not specifically the the local, the the southern part, but probably encompasses the north and Galilee as well. He's he's speaking to Jews primarily during this time, but he, he must go on. Mark, John does, uh, excuse me, Luke doesn't tell us that he went to pray, but Mark does in Mark 135. He's compelled to have communion with the Father and the Spirit. Now, this is a descriptive passage. It's not a prescriptive passage telling you what time to set your alarm and, you know, to wake up and read your Bible and pray and all those things. Yet, it still convicts you, doesn't it? (laughs) It convicts me. 
J.C. Ryle said this, there is an example here which all who desire to grow in grace and walk closely with God would do well to follow. We must make time for private meditation and for being alone with God. The neglect of this habit of withdrawing occasionally from worldly business is the probable cause of many an inconsistency or backsliding which brings scandal on the cause of Christ. The more work we have to do, the more we ought to imitate our master. If the master found the practice necessary, it must surely be a thousand times more necessary for his disciples. So it is very convicting to see our Lord's example after such an exhausting days. He wants to. He wants to have more time with the Lord. Why? Because this is what nourishes him. This is what energizes him to be refocused, to spend time with the Lord, to hear truth again, uh, and to, to, to meditate on truth, rather, and to, and to talk to the Father. People desperately want him to stay. And this is in total contrast to Nazareth. In Nazareth, they want to kill him. In Capernaum, they're like, don't leave. Get out of town. Don't leave us. But Jesus says he must go. And this is a theme in Luke where he uses word, it is necessary or I must. He's on a divine mission. The father has sent him, it says, to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. He must continue going on preaching and doing these miracles. And and so why do I say that his miracles uh, show Jesus' coming kingdom? Because as Jesus is preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand or it's near. He's doing these miracles to preview the kingdom. Now you ever go to uh, Sam's or Costco? Sam's does samples too? I think so. And, uh, and they have the little samples and kids love that. And they brought them back after COVID. You're like, oh man, and get the sample. This is like samples of the kingdom. It's like, this is what the kingdom is going to be like. It's that much more of a motivation for Israel to repent so that their, their king will establish the kingdom, the Davidic, sitting on the Davidic throne. And so he's giving them these previews. And, and what does the Old Testament say the Messiah will do when he begins his kingdom? He will banish sickness and disease, and there will be prosperity and peace. And so this is what Jesus has come to preview for them. And what does he say? The content of his preaching is he says it's the kingdom of God, the good news of the kingdom of God. Now, this is the first time Luke uses that phrase, the kingdom of God. This is actually a, a, a day of firsts. It's the first demon we encounter in Luke's gospel. It's the first healing and miracle that Jesus does. And it's the first time kingdom of God comes up. It occurs 32 times in Luke and eight times also where he just says the kingdom. The kingdom of God. What does this phrase mean? Well, Luke doesn't define it, nor does Matthew or Mark. What that tells us then is that their understanding of the kingdom of God is the same as what the Old Testament presented about the kingdom of God. It's not a bait and switch, not a change up. It is the same. And so Jesus is offering that kingdom that was understood in the Old Testament. It's consistent with that Old Testament expectation. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, the kingdom of God is not equivalent to salvation, but salvation is the entrance requirements for the kingdom of God. Listen to what one writer, Michael Vlock writes. He says, quote, while there is a close relationship between salvation and the kingdom, the two are not the same thing. We cannot say salvation is the kingdom or the kingdom is salvation. The kingdom of God is a broader concept than human salvation. 
One must be saved in order to enter the kingdom. Thus, salvation is the qualification for entrance into the kingdom. And we see this in other places. Jesus says in Nicodemus in John 3, 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So you must be regenerated in your heart. You must have a new heart to see the kingdom of God, to enter the kingdom of God. And then Jesus will tell this parable in Matthew, or the story um, in Matthew 25, 34, about the sheep and the goats. And the goats are the unbelievers. The sheep are believers. And he says, it's the sheep who are welcomed into the kingdom. They get to enter, right? So the qualification to enter into God's kingdom is that you have a new heart. And that's evidence in your repentance and your trust in the Savior. Throughout the Old Testament, we see this connection that for Israel to enjoy the covenant or the, the kingdom blessings, they must be a repentant people. They must turn to the Lord. They must have a circumcised heart, a regenerate heart. And that is always the case. And so what, why is Jesus going around to Israel primarily preaching the kingdom? Because he knows these passages in the Old Testament. He's saying you need to repent. You need to be right. You need to respond and receive your king so the kingdom can be established. And we know in hindsight, they don't. They reject. And so Jesus later will say in, in Luke 19, um, in Luke 19, verse 11, As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. And then he goes on to tell them the story that basically, which illustrates that Jesus is going to go away for a time, receive a kingdom from his father, and then he's going to come and establish that kingdom on the earth. Largely because Israel rejected her Messiah. But in the future, they will receive the Messiah. The Messiah will cause them to be regenerate and they will return. And that blessing for them will, will spill over to every other nation. Israel is not the end game. Israel is a means to an end to show in a microcosm fashion what God is going to do for all of the nations. As we conclude, listen to how Matthew summarizes this section of Jesus' ministry in Matthew chapter 4. In Matthew 4, verse 23, he says, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So these miracles not only show Jesus' compassion, it shows Jesus' credentials, but it also shows some previews of the coming kingdom. This is what it will be like in the kingdom. Does this not make you long for Jesus' kingdom? Does this not make you want to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done? on earth as it is in heaven. Later, Jesus would condemn Capernaum for not believing in him in Luke chapter 10, verse 15. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. Matthew would say, because the works that were done in you, if they had been done in Sodom, Sodom would have repented. But you guys saw these works. You were in that synagogue when that demon-possessed man stood up and Jesus rebuked him and you saw the healings and you were there on that day and yet you refused on the whole to believe in him. Signs point to Jesus, but signs cannot guarantee that a person believes in Jesus. Has 
the scriptures and the authoritative word of Jesus brought you to trust in him, brought you to say, this is truly the son of God. This one is the holy one of God, not in a generic affirmation of truth, but as your hope in life and in death. Are you prepared to die today as Whitfield got up and stood, stood at that scaffolding and said, it is appointed for man to die once and after that, the judgment. None of us know the day of our death. Those two people didn't know the day of their death. And how much more to be certain of that? Are you prepared to die today? Are you a citizen of the coming kingdom? Are you rightly related to the king of kings? Will you reign with Christ when he returns? I mean, if you have questions about these things, don't, don't go, oh, I shouldn't ask anyone about this. Oh, that'd be awkward. No, have these conversations. Why put off the most important conversations? For awkwardness? No, no one here is gonna feel awkward to talk to you about your soul and to talk to you to clarify things about the gospel. I'm not sure, I don't know. Talk to someone, come on. Deal with the question, are you a Christian? Do you truly embrace Christ and trust in him? And that's my prayer, that if that is you, that you would do that. And if, for, for many of us who have trusted in Christ, we would go, what a savior, what compassion that draws me near to this one. I love to hear of him. Oh yes, he's confirmed to be the one who is worthy of my trust by these signs, by the scriptures. Oh, and for that kingdom, as we see the kingdoms of this world opposed to God, we go, he's coming. His kingdom is coming. He will be the king over all. There will be no sickness, no disease, no demonic oppression, restoring of the creation, reversing the curse. It will be great. May your kingdom come and will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this incredible passage, this day in the life of the Lord Jesus. What amazement, what astonishment there was. Some of it saving, some of it simply an amusement. For us, Lord, may it be saving. May it be an amazement at Christ for who he really is and a trust in him. Lord, for those here who... You know their hearts. I don't know people's hearts, Lord. You know who truly knows you and who doesn't, Lord. Please be at work. And those who who may not, you would confirm in them the truthfulness of Scripture, the reliability of Christ, his sufficient work, and that they would have such confidence that whenever you would call them to yourself in death, that you would give them such confidence that they are yours. It would produce such springs of joy flowing out of them they're right with you. And Lord, for us who who know that joy, may that influence our week as we go out, knowing the authority of Christ and his care and concern for us personally and individually. May we bring those needs to you as they come into our minds, knowing you care. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.